It says here about this time. So that is the, the sense. It's giving us a few things that are happening during the period in which the church at Antioch is being founded. During primarily this year where Saul and Barnabas are spending a year teaching to the church. And there are a couple things that are going on at this time that we're going to look at today. And as I, we take up these things, we'll only take some of them up in part. Because as we get to later chapters in Acts, those chapters address certain things in more detail. And so we will address the more detail on those elements when we get here. So there will be some things today that might stir up thoughts and questions. Good. It's always good to have a desire to know more, to hear know more, to have it more clearly explained. So that's a good thing. But I want us to begin to take up something here. Uh, the first thing that we see taking place in these days about this time in verse 27 it says that prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now this is the element that I'm not going to extensively unfold today, but just present a part of it. It's important to know this, that the scripture speaks of Moses as a prophet, indeed the greatest prophet, no one like him arose after him. But then we do know that we had many other prophets in the Old Testament. Now for the most part, it was the law that that requirement that was laid down, the terms of the old covenant, in great specificity and detail. Exactly how they were to behave, exactly how they were to conduct themselves socially within the nation, how they were to, to eat, how they were to worship and sacrifice. A great deal of detail was laid down through Moses to the children of Israel. Now, many prophets came after Moses, and for the most part, those prophets would continue to remind the children of Israel, this is what the law says, and this is what you're doing. This is what it says, but this is what you're doing. You need to change your way, because one of the things that he says is when you disobey, God will bring all of these curses on you and you'll be given over to your enemy. So don't do that. Listen to and obey that law that God gave. In other words, what I'm trying to make clear here is most you can follow prophet after prophet after prophet through the Old Testament and they are they are neither expanding or contracting the law that was delivered to Israel through Moses. What they're oft doing is reminding them of the law that was given through Moses. That reminder is what we oft call forth-telling. Telling forth, speaking out, saying, remember the law of our God. They would often also add to it, remember the hand of our God. The ways that he mightily delivered us. From the hands of the enemy and the times he delivered us into the hands of our enemy. And reminding them of those things. So a lot of the Old Testament's prophets work was just faithfully applying the law to the people those days. Calling them to act on it and reminding them of the judgment that God would give. 
Additionally, at times, it involved foretelling. That is, telling things that are to come. The, fore, the foretelling, again, did not change, expand, or contract the law requirements that had been given to Israel. What it would do is tell them more specifically, if you do not repent right now, God is bringing the king of Assyria against you. If you do not turn from these things right now, at times he'll tell them, within this number of years, you'll be handed over. And you'll be handed over for this number of years. In Jeremiah, 70 years in captivity. And so they would speak things that were to come in detail, which was merely the practical outworking of God's promises related to his action towards the Israelites with their obedience or disobedience regarding the law. Okay, so again, noting that. As we come now to these prophets who are coming down, I'm not going to expand every element of it today, but the term prophet was an exceedingly broad term. was a popular term in the days of the Puritans, which is after biblical times, please note. Right? It was very popular in the days of the Puritans to refer to a, a gifted preacher of God's word as someone who was prophetic. He was not necessarily foretelling the future, other than the fact that there are clear scriptures that do clearly foretell the future, don't they? And so when we recite those things that, that God is going to, at some point, judge the world by a man. Who, will be, who is Jesus Christ, who will be coming again. There's a sense in which when I say that, I'm telling the future. Now, I'm not adding to anything at that point. And much of the, not totally, but much of the prophetic work that took place in the days of the New Testament and much of the prophetic activity of the apostles themselves was powerfully taking the Old Testament and the way that God had revealed himself through the Old Covenant and relating it to the coming of Christ. Relating it to the new covenant that is in his blood. And showing how those things, to what extent they teach us and serve as examples for us who now live under grace in Christ Jesus. And so they did a lot of explaining. If you read the book of Hebrews, there's so much quoting from the Old Testament and giving practical application of how that applies to us today. The book of Acts often does the same thing as it will point back to the promises that God made to David and that one would sit on the throne of David and then points to how Jesus Christ has come and is the fulfillment of the one who will sit and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. They're, those are taking those things and expounding them. So much prophecy, to some degree, was taking the word of God that had been given and bringing it with explanation and application to the people. That is something that we need much, much, much of today. In Acts 15, it says this of Judas and Silas, who came with Paul and Barnabas back after the, the uh, meeting that had taken place in Jerusalem to discuss 
the application of the law, it says this, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Their prophetic activity, their encouraging and strengthening the brothers would have been that wonderful application and expounding on the word of God. Now we're going to see here that some foretelling took place as well. Telling things that were to come. In our very passage that we're looking at today, Agabus, one among them, will foretell something. Of a coming famine. But I want us to also clarify a few more things. That we'll look at more detail. Once we get further on. But just to open these things up. For avenues of thinking. Acts 13 verse 1. Tells us about the church in Antioch. As it's been formed. As as originally we have Barnabas and Saul. Teaching there. But during their teaching ministry. They are able to appoint alongside of themselves other men to take up leadership in the church. Now note this. Some of those men may have been right there trained up from among and within Antioch itself. Some of those men may have received much of their training there in Jerusalem under the leadership of uh, the apostles and elders there. We don't have much detail as to their background. And that's one of the things that sometimes messes people up. When the scriptures don't supply much detail. What are sometimes teachers and preachers going to do? Oh no, they're going to fill in the details with their own ideas, their own opinions. And, and which may or may not be right. But we've got so much clear in the scriptures, scriptures that don't depend on opinion, that we need not spend much time on the opinions of men. Let's just dig in and receive what we're to receive from God's word. But I do want us to note this um, in Acts 21, because there is a tendency of some to say that uh, prophecy in the New Testament was Primarily a teaching and preaching ministry. And I want to indicate that though there were some who functioned prophetically with a teaching and preaching ministry. That's not the full and faithful definition of it. Because note this clearly from Acts 21. Now we know from 1 Timothy that Paul did not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men. You remember that? And yet, this is what it says in Acts 21, verse 8 and 9. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And when we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I want to assure you, they were not teachers and preachers in the local church. The role that they had was significantly different. It would, it's likely that they were among those who we'll, we'll see also in Acts 21. Who were impressed by the Spirit with regard to the dangers that awaited Paul as he went to Jerusalem. It will tell, say that through the Spirit, everyone, was, all the brothers were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This same Agabus will appear again in this chapter and he will manifest, demonstrate 
a vision in a sense that he had that showed Paul bound and led away. Okay? So, so note this. Uh, we must be careful. Sometimes when we see words in Scripture, we want to come with but a singular definition of those things. We can't always do that. One of the challenges where we make this mistake and I, and is the Scripture uses the, a term such as sanctification. And the Scripture actually uses that term sanctification, such a meaningful term, in two very important ways. The term sanctification in its most simple meaning simply meant consecrated or set apart. And so there, there is what we tend to refer to as positional sanctification. We were of the world. But now we are no longer of the world. We are of God. We were of the kingdom of this world. Now we're of the kingdom of the beloved son. We were in darkness. Now we are in light. There is a specific statement of once for all positional sanctification where you as a believer can know you have been sanctified unto Christ. The rest of the world still remains where they are, but you by grace and I by grace are sanctified unto Christ. But then there's also passages in the scripture which speak of sanctification not as positional, which is one and done and permanent, but progressive, which means we are positionally in Christ. But as I am positionally in Christ, if you were to watch my daily life, my every word, and frighteningly possibly see my thoughts, would it be just like Christ? Is my every thought, is my every action as Christ was in everything pleasing to the Father? I sadly have to say no, and, and some just went ahead and said it for me. It's not. It's not, it, you know, and, and I won't pretend that it is. But the scripture tells me that as we gaze on him through his word, I am being transformed from degree to degree into the image of the son. So there is a sense in which I am sanctified and a sense in which I am being sanctified positionally no longer in the world but in Christ progressively less like the world and more like Christ and oh I long for greater progress for me and for you because that's what adorns the doctrine right that's what gives glory to God when the world looks upon us and they see Christ likeness and from time to time if they see it they may also see a stumble and that's, not, that's a time for us to confess our sin and repent. But then as the accusers come at us and say, I saw you, that wasn't right. You know what we say to them? You are right. I'm still imperfect. But my hope does not rest in my perfection. But in the one who was alone perfect and blameless and spotless. And so we use their attack on us as an opportunity to once again do what? Declare the amazing grace of our God that's given us in Christ Jesus. Oh, yes. Um, so, 
setting those things out, it, it, it's important to recognize the, the distinction. And these prophets came down. And how many prophets came down as we're looking in verse uh, 27? Now in these days, prophets, the word is plural, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. How many were there? I'm glad to have been met with silence. Because we do not know that answer. And so we, we, we cannot pretend to, but we know that there was a group of them that came down. They've come down from Jerusalem. It's hopeful and likely that they have been sent to bring beneficial encouragement to the church there. And it tells us this. Um, in Acts chapter uh, 11, verse 28. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Okay, so here, here is the statement that he's come forward with. There will be a great famine over all the world. Now that sentence by Agabus is clearly not an expounding of some Old Testament promise and an application of it today. He is telling, foretelling, something that is to come. Now, I ask you this. When he says, there is going to be a famine over the whole world, what changes has that brought in the doctrine of the early church? Does it change their understanding of the person and work of Christ? No. Does it change their understanding of, of, of the responsibilities of the church? No. Does it change anything regarding evangelism? Does it change anything, the doctrine of God in times? The fact is, that telling of a particular event that will take place in the unfolding of history changes nothing with regard to what we believe and practice. So let's not miss that. No one ever should come outside the apostles and seek to add to anything that we are to believe or set forth any command that we are to practice that is not right here in the word of God. It does not matter if they carry with them some name of calling themselves a prophet. No one is to add to the word of God. No commands are given. I want you to also note this here. Even when he says there is to be a famine, does he follow it up and say, so here is what's required of you? Does he do that? No, he doesn't. Because a New Testament prophet who was foretelling the future could not say, here is what is required of you. The way we know here is what is required of us is when we see it clearly taught in the words of the New Testament, penned or attested by the apostles themselves appointed by Christ. We've got to make sure not to miss that. The scriptures even do record for us a couple of New Testament prophecies, actually two by Agabus, and we'll see the other one as we get further in Acts. And none of them sit as commands. We've looked in the past. Paul says this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14. Look, the word of God does not come from you. Anyone who thinks he's a prophet or spiritual has to acknowledge that what I write to you, I as an apostle, 
is a command of the Lord. That strong distinction that ought not be missed. But nonetheless, if someone comes along and prophesies as this individual did, there's going to be a famine over all the world. Well, what is required of us? Well, the scriptures don't say anything is required of us. But if there is some sense that there may be wisdom and truth to it, what might be a good plan is to save a little money. Now might not be the time to max out the credit cards. Now might not be the time to buy, you know, the new oxen or the new carriage or whatever it may be at that time or in this time. Now might be the time to be a little cautious and be prepared. Now, if someone's cautious and prepared, saves up a little money, and a famine doesn't come, what have they lost? No. Now, what's interesting about what happens here as he's speaking uh, in Antioch itself, where this prophecy was made, and it may have been made also in Jerusalem and other places by Agabus. It wouldn't be uncommon for someone to take a prophecy that they've shared and shared it in a few different locations. Uh, they either may have saved or they intended to save. Now, this famine, though, though our history records that there were famines in Jerusalem and Judea, there were some famines in Rome. There were about four different famines while Claudius was the ruler. Four different regional famines. It didn't hit Antioch. Okay, so it, it's throughout the world in numerous places, not in every single part of the world. So they were spared from it. But listen, and, and, and I think that sometimes we miss it. People get so caught up in, ooh, look at that. He told a prophecy of the future. And they miss the, the, the heart of what's being said here. He prophesied that there would be this. When it came, what was the response of the disciples? Look what it says uh, with me. And I guess this, this is as we move on to our, our second point. The determined disciples. So we've seen the prophets. Now we look at the determined disciples. It says this in verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And this they did by sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So it does seem like to some degree this uh, prophecy promoted a degree of financial prudence on the part of them. And then as things unfolded, they realized these extra funds, these extra resources that we have, we don't need them. Because this has not afflicted us. But what have we come to hear? Our brothers and sisters in Christ over there are in need. We have, by God's providential circumstances, a present abundance where they have a present need. And so they stepped forward. What I think is interesting in this, it says they determined according to their ability each of their ability to send relief to the brothers. Nothing, nothing in here even necessarily indicates that letters went out from Jerusalem pleading for uh, support, pleading for need, pleading for money. 
But there seems to be this strong sense in their hearts that oh, this is what God would have us do. That, that this is what we would want to do. We hear that there are brothers in need. We want to come alongside them. Along these lines, listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says this in verse 1. We want you to know, as Paul writes to the Corinthians who needed a little correction and needed a lot of good example. He said, we want you to know, brothers, uh, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Now, I love that phrase here because he's getting ready to talk about the Macedonian church. He's getting ready to praise their actions and use them as a good example. But I love what he does here before that. Before going into how the wonderful action and deed of the Macedonians, he introduced it by saying, brothers, I want, to I want you to know about the grace of God that was given to the Macedonians. So that when you hear the good that they did, you know what you don't do? Start the Macedonian club of Corinth. Right? Well, we're the Macedonian club. We're kind of the elite Christians, a little bit more committed than the rest. Do people do stuff like that? Oh, yeah, they do. But that, his goal wasn't that. It was even before he gets into that, he said, I want you to know about the grace of God that was given them. So as you as I give you this good example, learn from this example, imitate this example. But know this, who gets the praise for what the Macedonians did. They did it because of the grace of God that was given to the Macedonians. Always important to know that. And so when we plead with God, change our hearts, grant us greater patience, grant us greater compassion, grant us greater generosity. Oh God, pour out your grace, grace upon grace, in abundance. We need you, oh God. I love that. I mean, I like it when churches also want to commit themselves and say, we're committing uh, to this overseas need to contribute to this. The need of the saints, the need of the poor. In, in this circumstance, we're going to commit to that. It's good. It's good to commit. But I always like the simple reminder that in all of our commitments, our confidence is not in our courage and our strength and our ability and our commitment. It is what? God. Because I will say this. We commit that. And, I, and this, I've, I've seen situations where this has happened. Churches have committed a particular amount to a particular mission or ministry or work. And then guess what happened? Problems in the church. A few families leave the church who were significant contributing families suddenly the whole budget of the church is turned upside down and the commitment becomes what not followed through not not because of a lack of desire maybe but just because well we no longer have the means to do that and it's important for us to understand in everything that we commit to in everything that we endeavor in everything that we hope we are dependent upon the grace of God we are dependent upon the hand of God 
the power of God. Would that everybody knew it. Because know this. Every leader, every nation, every ruler, every company, every business, whether they know it or not, they are absolutely dependent on the hand of God every single day. He's the one who gives us breath. In Him, we live and move and have our being. If He withdraws it, what happens? We're done. We're going to see soon at the end of this chapter, Herod in a single day and in a moment of absolute pride and arrogance, God just says, yeah, I'm withdrawing life from you. And Herod, Herod goes from a moment of absolute self-power and self-sense of importance to what? Worm food. Just like that. And this is not something we should, we should mess with. It is, but it is something that we're aware of. And Paul later in Acts 17 is going to explain. Look, God is the one who, who made all the nations from a single man. He's the one who has allotted their boundaries and allotted their times. You got to know this. You know, even to the people who don't know the true and living God who has revealed himself in the scriptures, even those who don't know them, he is still God. He is still sovereign. He is still ruler. And when Jesus says, all authority has been given to me over all flesh, that is right. And when he comes, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The believers and the unbelievers. As the scriptures are, are oft pleased to even call them. The righteous by virtue of our union with Christ. And the wicked by their very and what was our very nature. So what, what I want us to note here. Rather than, rather than getting caught up in uh, this, uh, this amazing uh, prophecy that was brought out. I think the emphasis in this passage is very clearly in awareness of the needs in that time. You, you do realize this as well. We, they did not have anything close to the world of communication that we have today. I mean, it, it is remarkable how easy it is today to communicate with somebody on the other side of the world. It can be done absolutely instantly by text, by phone. I'm communicating all the time with men on the absolute other side of the world instantaneously. And whether I want it or not, news is being fed to me of all kinds of things that are happening in all kinds of places and it just keeps coming. Right? And we have even newspapers that come to our houses, potentially, every morning that have news in it. Again, backing up. In these days, did they have smartphones? No. Did they have internet? No. Did they have cell phones? Did they have home phones? Did they have telegraphs? They didn't have... Any of those ordinary means of communication. So when things were communicated from one place to another, how did it happen? Oh, you've just come from Jerusalem. Tell us what is going on there. 
And or sometimes somebody, such as a Paul or others, would say, I need to know what's going on in Ephesus. Somebody get over there, visit them, encourage them, then get on back to me and let me know what's going on there. Right? These are the ways, and, and things were much slower. So, one of the ways that, that these things were sorted out, as they received this information that, that funds were needed, it says, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Now, again, I want to turn your attention still in 2 Corinthians. The grace that has been given for the churches in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You think, what? Those are, those are such extreme words. You, you've, said ex, you've said abundance of joy, extreme poverty. So what are they going to do? It says this, and, and I read, for they gave according to their means, and I can testify, beyond their means of their own accord. So the church at Macedonia would say something like this, look, I, I don't really have much to give because we live pretty simply, but I know that they're in need. So maybe they are, they're committing beyond their circumstances. So some of them chose to deny themselves that they might benefit others. What an amazing thought. They, there are some there who I don't know how many days they've gone without food. Maybe I will fast for three days and take what I would have used... To buy food for myself and family, we will fast for three days and send that money to them so that some of them who are starving and going without for longer can have what's needed. What an amazing thing that stirs in the hearts of, of, of these men. It says they gave beyond their means. And verse 4 says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief for the saints. Please let us give. Oh, please, please, please let us give. What? You know, I, 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 I talked to um, many dear men who have uh, gone out from churches and been serving and, and had the desire and, and the sense of calling that God has called them overseas. And we had a, a couple dear brothers uh, come through here and... and uh, now, one of them is over in France, and they're traveling from church to church saying, we want to go over there, and we want to minister. We want to serve these needs, and we want to do what we can do. Uh, but in order to do that, we need to raise these amount of funds. We need to, you know, we need to uh, pray for us that we can raise these amount of funds. And the fact is, a lot of churches they go to um, are already tight budgets and can't do much. And so they keep going and keep going and keep going, try to raise funds. But you know what they never say? You know what? I'm just having people coming up to me and saying, please, please let me contribute to you going. Please let me give. Nobody says, please let me give. It, it, it is off the other way. Uh, please, can you give to help me go? Instead of, oh, you want to go? Please, can I participate? Tell me in what way I can participate. It's not dissimilar to where Jesus uh, here, they're, they're 
sacrificial affliction to where Jesus was watching and, and the different people were giving their money. And that widow came forward, you remember, and she put in what was effectively two coins, two copper coins, which valued, according to the scriptures, at similar to us for a penny. And Jesus said of her, she did what? She gave more than all the rest because she put in everything she had to live on. So even though it, it seemed like little, and it's possible that the church of Macedonia, in terms of monetary contribution, may have been less than other churches contributing. But he sees this, and he sees their, their commitment, and he sees their desire, and he encourages them in this, reminding them of, of the way that God so powerfully works. It's also important for us to understand this. Look at, look at me what it says, if you would, in James chapter 1, verse 27. It says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's not just making sure I do right, making sure I, but it's also what? Considering the needy and others among us. I love the, the way that, it was, that uh, Paul describes it in Galatians too. He says, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given us, they gave us the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10 says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. So you, you, can, you can see uh, what's happening. Even in Acts chapter 4, verse 34, it says this. There was in that early church in Jerusalem, not a needy person among them. For as many were landowners, were selling their houses and brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles. And it was distributed as each has need. One more I read before uh, explaining some more. Revelation 15, 26 and 27 says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. So again, noting this, the world is full of poor and needy people. And there it is absolutely, I would almost say, impossible for us to make a significant dent in that. We do see that the, there is a, a, a focused priority within these contexts. And that is to try to help the needy brothers who were in Jerusalem. To, the, they made some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. It's, it's the same kind of thing. Where not, not that we don't give any to the world in need. But generally speaking. I've got a responsibility to provide food for my household. The scripture actually says. The one who doesn't provide for his own household. Is worse than an unbeliever. Now I'm not going to take food out of my children's mouths. To give to unknown people necessarily. I've got to make sure that these are well taken care of. Then beyond that. The household of faith. Make sure that God's people are taken care of. That for many of us. Might exhaust. Our resources. That might even push us beyond. To some degree of sacrifice already. Now there may be some among us. 
who God has granted an overabundance where they still have more that can contribute to different circumstances that more randomly provide um, uh, soup kitchens and food closets and other things. All of which are good things. But we want to make sure that we, we take care of our family, that we take care of and love and, and serve God's people, his saints, and then beyond that also, out to the world. Now, wanting us to remember this, in 2 Corinthians, it says these words regarding the church in Corinth, who was also collecting to give to the, to the needy. It says this in chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All right. Each gave as they were able. Each gave according to their ability. Our ability is different, each one of us who's here, isn't it? So what, what's happening is not Who's giving more? Who's giving less? Everybody commit to a fixed amount. That's not what's happening here. Each was giving according to his own ability. But he sits back and reminds us of this. God is able to abound. God is able to give. God is able to supply. Don't, don't lose that. Because sometimes what excuses could come into the hearts of some people and say, Well, we're fine right now. And we have an overabundance, but, but who knows what's going to happen next year or a year from now. So I'm going to just hoard it a little bit, you know, and, and maybe claim that hoarding as good stewardship, but in the process, not help those in need. And he's reminding them there that, that you don't have to be someone who's... You, you want to be responsible. You want to be good stewards. You want to be careful, surely. But you don't need to get over anxious about the future. Because just like today, tomorrow, and everything is in God's hands. And God is able, either right now, through you, to meet the need of them there... And yes, maybe in two years, you'll be the one in need. And yet, maybe God will be pleased to meet your need reciprocally through them. It's okay. God is able to surely meet the needs as they arise. So, always make Him your highest priority. And seek to do good and be thoughtful to the needs of others. And again he says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And increase the harvest of righteousness. What he does a small little twist there. As we tend to focus on the bread and the seed and the funds. As we tend to focus on that, he's saying, hey, as you, as you give generously and as you serve and as you know that God gives, remember, more than storing up for yourself things on this earth, there is a greater value in storing your treasures in heaven where moth does not attack rust does not get thief does not steal now when jesus gives that instruction to store your treasures 
in heaven. Is that a location to store your earthly treasures? No, because you, you can't do that, right? You, you can't fill a briefcase full of money and then tuck it away in heaven. Can you? You, can't, you should not tie it to a helium balloon and let it go. It's not going to get there. It's not going to get it done. So what Jesus is doing is he's showing them not merely a different storage place, but in showing them a different storage place, he's tuning them into a higher treasure. You know that those who are rich in this present world ought to be generous and ready in good works. Don't, don't just be amazed at how much you have. Be considering how much you do, not just how much you have. Let our emphasis be different. And he goes on and says uh, this, um, verse 12. Verse 11, for you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So for the people who give, thank you, God, for giving us the providential blessings as well as the grace in our hearts to give. For the people who received, thank you God for supplying our needs through our brothers. And so in all things, whether you are the giver or the receiver, who's getting the glory from both sides? Oh, it should be God. It indeed must be God. And then he goes on to... to down in verse 14 ends by saying, and while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you that moved you to give, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. <laughs> and just gives that little reminder. Has anyone ever given to the degree that God has given? The gift he's given us is so inexpressible, so extraordinary, so matchless. Right, the last thought that I want, to, uh, want us to pay attention to here today, and simply this. There's a brief introduction to Herod, as well as James. It says this in chapter 12. About that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of Lord. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. So what, what's interesting about this is in this section, let me look uh, firstly at James. What's, what's somewhat shocking is this. It says this about James. We, we first hear James mentioned in Acts chapter 1 verse 13. Staying in the upper room, there were staying Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, and so on. The next time that we hear James mentioned is Acts 12 verse 2. He killed James, the brother of the Lord. Well, what did James do between that time and this time? Since he's not mentioned, should we assume he did nothing? That would be unwise because the scriptures do oft generally record simply what God was doing through the apostles of which James was one of the apostles. And, and it wasn't a short time either because the death of James is in about A.D. 44. 
Okay, so we've got more than a decade after the establishment of the church where he has been working and serving and ministering. Well, what did he do? What are his details? Well, believe it or not, the scriptures do not tell us. But believe it or not, you can find books where men will tell you. Yeah, that's the scary part. The, the whole point is, well, I want to know what James did. Why do people get so caught up? I want to know what James did instead of focusing on, I want to know what God would have me do. It's a lot more fun and a lot easier to say, let me consider others and let me put them higher or lower on the totem pole. Let me praise them. Let me exalt them. Let me focus on them. Let me criticize them. That's a whole lot easier than saying what? What would God have me do? How would he have me? And, and I ask you this. Um, when all is said and done, do you think James is sitting in the presence of Christ saying, everything I did, none of it even got recorded in Scripture. Nobody even knows what I did. What a waste, man. Do you think that's happening? I don't. Because you know who he's in the presence of? Christ. It doesn't matter. You know, Praise God for all the bi biographies that are never written. <laughs> you know, so, so, that, so that men don't somehow overly fix their eyes upon men. Now, much is recorded. And those things are recorded that we might learn and that we might learn from their examples. But when we have nothing, we cannot conclude there was a loss or there was a failure or there was a compromise. He served in the path that God allotted to him. And he passed on for the name of the Lord. The fact that he was arrested. He was arrested in what context? Violent hands on those belonging to the church. So we know this. Ten years plus on. James, the brother of John, was still clearly identified in service to and among the people of Christ. Amen? What more do we need to hear? The details. You, don't, you and I don't need to necessarily boast in one another's details. We boast in the Lord and in His greatness. And indeed, as we go from place to place, what we ought to be talking about is what? Who he is and what he's done. I like how often when even they went back to Jerusalem and they went back to Antioch and they spoke about the things that had been done in ministry and had been accomplished. They speak about the grace of Christ. The grace of God that was at work among these people. The grace of God that was at work. There's, there's not. Listen to what we did. We planted all these churches. We minister all these people. We have this many baptisms. We have this... Wow. I mean, if you ever read many modern missions letters, there's a lot of math in there and a lot of numbers, you know, which in time, God only knows whose hearts have truly turned, turned to him. And so all of the numbers and this and that, they don't ultimately matter. That Christ is being proclaimed, that people are being gathered in his name. I don't need to know if it's 30 or 300. Just tell me that the gospel is being declared with faithfulness, that God is being honored, that Christ is the head of the church, and the saints are earnestly loving and serving him 
and cooperating and loving and sharing with one another. Had a little bit more to say, and we're going to just take it up next week because our time has passed. So we see here something of the prophets, but the prophets primarily teaching and preaching, but off, sometimes the ministry was even simple encouraging words, and sometimes it was speaking things of the future. But the prophecy that was given here was a segue to introduce the, the spirit among the saints, the, the disciples, that they were determined to do good to one another. Determined to be thoughtful and careful of one another. So that said, in simple ways, we kind of might need to be like that. As someone would have to send a messenger there and back. Maybe sometimes we actually need to ask one another. How are things going with you? What's going on in your life? Tell me some ways I can come alongside you. Tell me some ways that I can pray for you. Um, and maybe sometimes be so bold as to say. Brother would you pray for me? This is, a, this is an issue I'm facing right now. I really need God's help. Would you pray for me? Shouldn't we have an environment where anybody should feel absolutely comfortable to come up to any of us and say that and know that they're going to be met with with a reception and that that person is going to go back and pray? Yeah, that's what we want to see. So we see the the prophet, the ministry of the prophets, the determination, and then we see um, the simple and, and yet unrecorded faithful ministry of James. We'll take up James and Herod next week. Let's pray. God, we are always just thankful to dig into your word. And we know that there's always so many nuances and nuggets that we get to spend so many days in our life uh, discovering with increasing clarity the rich truths that are there. But the few things that I sought to bring out today, I pray that you would be pleased to impress them upon the saints. God, that you would cause us to be a people who uh, recognize we need never be distracted by anything anyone would say. What you require of us is unchanging. No one can add to or take away or alter your word. It is established. And yet you, when you would give prophecies, it was so that people might be of good benefit in the lives of one another, that they would be uh, warned and, and cautioned Lord we thank you for the sacrificial nature of service to the saints that was displayed oh God work such a thing in us and I thank you also for the simple recording of James there at the beginning there at the end of his days and all that he did known to you the one to whom he answers the one that we truly would care would commend us oh God May our hearts be not for the praise of men, but that we would live to your praise before men and that you might be pleased with us. In Jesus' name, amen.